That's right. I'm too grumpy about it. Do we still have one right here? You're the elder. There's no, one seat. Coming. One seat right here. Lauren's coming. Oh, Lauren's coming. Okay. Sorry, we don't have a seat there. Anybody still got a seat next to him? One over here. Karen right here. There's one. John right here. I think that gets us all. Good morning, everyone. This is a class entitled Faith Seeking Understanding, Lessons Un, the Un in parentheses, Unlearned, Lessons Unlearned. Let me do a quick uh, review of the ground we've tried to cover so far. Our, our main title, Faith Seeking Understanding, comes from uh, St. Thomas, St. Anselm. I'm still confused because it's Thomas Aquinas. And it's St. Anselm of Canterbury. Sorry, thank you. Let me get straight here. St. Anselm of Canterbury. And uh, he used this uh, as a way of talking about the practice of theology, that it's faith-seeking understanding. We're given the gift of faith, he says, and then because we're created in the image of God, we have these exercise, uh, exercise of, ra of rationality, and we employ our rationality to seek to understand. Uh, that the ongoing journey of seeking, then, allows us ways in which our understanding can be deepened, and that deepening of understanding then in turn informs our faith, and that faith in turn, this new faith or new understanding of faith, can drive further seeking to understand. So this is an ongoing iterative process throughout life, that the things that you think seem so plain and so simple and so clear to you today may not seem quite so clear to you ten years from now, and you may have new things that seem much clearer to you a decade hence or two decades since. So faith-seeking understanding. Uh, as opposed to the, uh, in that first session, as opposed to the metaphor taken from Alexander Campbell, who talked about theology this way, Campbell said, uh, as the facts, uh, or as medicine is to a theory of medicine, so the facts of the gospel are to theology. So in other words, he looked at theology as something that's disposable. All you need are the facts of the gospel. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, or to have the fact of Jesus dying on the cross for us, or have the facts that are portrayed clearly in Scripture, he said. If you have the facts, that's all you need. You don't need a theory of the facts. Just like if you, if you have an infection, you need penicillin. You don't need a theory of how penicillin works. Well, there are some ways in which that might be a helpful metaphor. Remember, metaphors are always helpful only in certain regards to certain things, right? When you overextend a metaphor and try to do too much with the metaphor, then it loses its, its helpfulness. So there may be certain things that are helpful about that metaphor, but I've suggested that we think about a different sort of metaphor when we think about doing theology, and that is that we think about Instead, we think about the sort of experience, we, we think about the metaphor of friendship. We think about the experience or the fact of friendship. We think about the stories that we tell, our memory, the narratives. And that as we tell these things, that informs this experience. And that experience deepened then leads to more of that. And it's this ongoing process of development, of growing to understand, of having, having experience and reinterpreting our experience and so forth. And the same way with our own theology, as we have certain experiences with God, 
have certain experiences with the life of the Christian tradition, that can be deepened and we continue to think about what that means and what, through the gift of rationality, we might make of that. And it continues to deepen as we go. In the second session, we talked about certifiability. I talked about this uh, experience that I've had that a lot of you seem to resonate with. And that in many ways, um, we grew up with what the philosophers, the, some of the philosophers call the modernist dichotomies. That there is subjective experience and there's objective reality. There are opinions and there are facts and so forth. And the idea was that there can be a very clear distinction between those. And what we must do in our pursuit of understanding is to have a sort of certifiable claim about these things. So I use the refrain that I got from my preacher. You got to know you know, you know you know, you know you know it's right. And he would say this over and over again. You got to know you know, you know you know, you know you know it's right. You got to know you know, you know you know, you know you know it's right. Until I finally realized I could not know I know, I know I know, I know I know anything. <laughs> and thus, if I had to know I know I know I know I know I know I know faith, then I could not have faith. And thus, well, I guess I don't have faith. In other words, the preacher, in driving such a view of knowledge, actually undercut my faith because that was not a realistic description of what faith entails. Instead, as modernity has been questioned in various ways, the idea is that this is not so much a sharp line, but there are ways in which these things are always at work. Most of us, at least, believe there's some reality outside of us, but we're increasingly aware of the fact that I cannot say anything about the reality outside of me apart from doing it through my own particular subjective reality. You know, as much as I may try, I cannot speak as or for women because I am not a woman and I have not had the experiences women have. Um, as much as I may try to understand the perspective of others, I cannot speak for or on behalf of the African-American experience in the United States of America because it's not my experience. I can listen to the stories, I can try to understand, I can try to empathize, but I know that I'm still speaking as a white man, even if I try to do so empathetically. That there are certain realities about the way in which we experience the world that are always necessarily going to be mediated through who we may be. You know, some of you who were here that week remember I told the story about when Laura and I were in Kenya many years ago, and we were driving home and stopped in traffic, and I looked over and saw a naked man walking down the sidewalk. And we, we, we were taken aback and asked the driver, what's up with this guy? And he was not, not surprised at all. And he said, oh, you know, he's mud. And I said, what? Did you, he's, he's mud. He's crazy. That it turned out that in Nairobi, in Kenya, the way in which you show mental illness is by you walk around naked. And it turns out, so I'm told, that there are those who study this who have these catalogs of the ways in which mental illness is shown in very particular ways, culturally bound, throughout the world. And all of a sudden it hit me, if, if even mental illness is, is exhibited in culturally bound ways, 
How am I so arrogant as to think that I can rise above my cultural realities and speak as if I know, I know, I know, I know, I know this is the way it is. Does that make sense? So the questioning into this. So I suggested for the metaphor here that rather than thinking in terms of the way the modernist philosophers did, that you come up with some foundation for knowledge that you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know it's right, and then build up your edifice of knowledge on top of that. Uh, this, is, this is a model called philosophical foundationalism. And rather than that, which seems to be a questionable practice, that one way to think about convictions or truth claims is through the metaphor of a web or a net. That we take any particular claim that we may have and we realize that, well, we believe that because our mama told us, because the preacher told us, because we read some verses in the Bible, because the elder in the church told me, because I had a mystical experience as a child, so forth and so on. And it turns out, you know, that the way you usually, most of us end up realizing, well, I don't believe, I, I used to believe X, and I don't believe X anymore. Typically, the way that process happens is very slowly, one of the lines break. Maybe I don't trust that preacher anymore, but I still got all this other stuff. And then maybe it be that um, I have a very difficult church experience, and that breaks that one. And then another one kind of falls apart. And then if another one falls apart, then all of a sudden that thing begins to fall. Right? So it's a fascinating way to think about the ways in which we have convictions. I don't know what you want to do with that, but I would suggest that it, it seems to be much truer to the way in which we come to convictions and we come to beliefs. Then last week, um, we began talking about legalisms and moralisms. And that is, this notion that, at the very end of class last, last week, I talked about a definition of a legalism. That legalism is a focus upon a rule as an end in and of itself. That a moralism is a focus upon a moral rule as an end in and of itself. You might think about it this way. Imagine that you're a basketball player, and you go to uh, basketball practice. And um, the... Uh, the coach begins to say, look, we're not going to have games anymore, but we're going to keep on practicing. And so come to practice, we're going to do our, our drills, and you, you do your dribbling drills, you go to the line, you, throw, you shoot your free throws, you go out and you do your jump shots, and you do all the drills that basketball player teams do. And he said, but we've decided we're not going to play games anymore. And you say, well, why, why do we do this stuff? And he said, because it's the right thing to do. And you say, I, I don't feel like dribbling anymore. Well, it's the right, we're going to dribble. <laughs> and you show up on time. Do not forsake the assembly of the practice. And we're going to dribble. The focus upon the rule or the moralism, it's the focus upon the, the rule without attention to the practice or the purpose of what this is all about, right? And see, sometimes the liberals come on the scene, and they say, well, you know, co Coach, I'm, I'm, I'm not a conservative. I'm a progressive, and so I don't think I should have to dribble as I go down the court anymore in the game. 
They say, well, do you want to play the game or not? Right? There are certain rules that this is just the way it works, buddy. And if you don't want to play the game, fine. But if you're going to play the game, you're going to dribble. So it, it kind of can cut fascinating ways. That metaphor can cut fascinating ways on both the conservatives and the liberals. <coughs> and we'll talk more about this kind of notion of a practice as we go further on in the term. But last week, talking about moralisms and legalisms, I suggested that in my own experience what began to happen was that I became deeply aware of the way in which you cannot escape the clear word of the New Testament. We are saved by grace through faith. Full stop. Hey, don't, I would suggest we never put a comma after that. And we don't even put a semicolon after that. But always a period. We are saved by grace through faith. Period. We are saved by grace through faith. Period. However, that does not mean that there aren't other questions to ask. And it does not mean that there are not still words to define. Always put a period. But that's not the end of the conversation. And thus, part two. I remember I wrote a chapter on uh, Leo Tolstoy in my dissertation, and I remember one day reading a, one of his journals. He was a uh, fascinating character, and when he was young, he was an uh, officer in the Russian military, and at this particular point, he was um, off on the, the front in a particular war, and Tolstoy, particularly when he was young and on, on into his older years, struggled a great deal with promiscuity. And in this particular entry in his journal, as I recollect, he, uh, he, he says how um, in his journal, writing in the morning, that he had slept with a, a woman at the camp. It's not uncommon for uh, in various places for prostitutes to go with military fronts. And that was true then, that was true in Nashville in the Civil War. As a matter of fact, many of you, this is completely free, uh, many of you may not know the fact that Nashville was a place that actually um, gave certificates to prostitutes during the Civil War. They would check that, check out their public health, public health concerns, they would give them a certificate of health that they didn't have sexually transmitted diseases, so far as they could tell, and give them a certificate so they could be a legal prostitute during the Civil War when the, all, the, all the military were in Nashville. Oh, this was not an uncommon sort of practice for, for this sort of stuff to go on. And uh, so Tolstoy, in his journal, writes how he had slept with his prostitute. And he writes in his journal and says, I will never do it again. That afternoon, in his journal... He writes simply, I did it again. <laughs> now, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that our uh, uh, laughter about that is not uh, really an indictment of Tolstoy as much as it is an awareness of the fact about how real this works for all of us. Right? We know the experience of saying, I will never do that again. 
And when we say, I'll never do that again, we actually mean this. We deeply mean, when I say I'll never do it again, that I will never do it again. And yet, we do it again. Well, when I began to understand this notion that you're saved by grace through faith, my, uh, the way my metaphors began to change was that, um, that, that you kind of learn from some of the, our good evangelical brothers and sisters, is you, you take this sort of metaphor of a judge in a court, and we stand before God guilty of our sins, aware of all of our transgressions, and we're told in this metaphor that God looks at us and God does not see us, but God sees what? How's the metaphor work? The blood of Christ on us, right? And then the judge says, not guilty, right? And so I'd been trying to think through that sort of metaphor as I had tried to understand grace. Moreover, I began during this time in my college years to explore this whole notion of a personal relationship with God. This is not a way we talked in my church growing up. We didn't talk about a personal relationship with God. We talked about God. We talked about the will of God. We talked about the commands of God. We talked about a personal relationship with God. That being said, as I said in one of our very early sessions, that didn't mean that I didn't have a notion of a personal relationship with God. We just didn't talk that way. And that was not the pro a primary construct through which we tended to think about what we were doing here. So I began to try to understand what it might it look like to have a personal relationship with God. What might it look like to try to experiment with new sorts of practices of prayer? What might it look like to listen to other people talk about their experience, their personal experiences with God? And what began to happen was that my sectarianism began to break down. I had a, I had a mentor in college. He was a very busy man. Um, he had a lot on his plate. And yet he reached out to me and one of my, my dear friends, and we would meet once a week. And we would go talk for an hour, and oftentimes he would take us out to one of the meet in three places, Sylvan Park or something like that, to have lunch. And he would simply begin, knowing where I and my friend both had come from, he, his technique was wily and subversive. He would simply ask us questions that we had never thought about and could not answer. He didn't act as if he necessarily knew the answer, but he would just kind of ask the question and watch us kind of stumble around and stumble all over ourselves trying to answer the question. And we would always go away kind of scratching our heads saying, well, you know, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that that way before. One night, this mentor, he said, Lee, I want you to go with some, to something with me. And I said, okay. So I, I showed up. He picked me up at the dorm. We drove across town, and uh, we went to a meeting and in this meeting were uh, faculty and administrators and students from a variety of Christian schools across the state of Tennessee. And you got to remember, here I am a junior in college, and my sectarianism is still very, very strong. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I wouldn't necessarily have called them Christian schools in Tennessee because I couldn't have necessarily seen them as Christian. And uh, as I went into this gathering that night, the, the one who was convening the meeting said, for the first half hour or so tonight, what I'd like for us to do 
is to just take time for everybody to share just a couple of minutes on how you've seen God at work in your life over the last year since we were together. And you know, for me, this was um, a disorienting experience because it was the first time I'd ever sat in a circle with devoted Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Catholics and simply listen to them talk about their faith and talk about their experience with God in a way that was undeniably authentic. And at break, my mentor asked me, what do you think about that? And I said, before I say what I said, let me back up. See, one of the things that... Um, one of the ways, y'all remember my story I told you about my, my Baptist teacher, right? When I, I, had, I had this good Southern Baptist teacher, and w here I was as a 10th grader in high school, and I would argue with him about the meaning of baptism, and I knew the Baptist didn't understand it correctly. And, <laughs> and I would show him from the scriptures how he didn't understand it correctly. And then finally one day I said to Mr. White, Mr. White, you know full well that the only reason... You believe what you believe is because your mother is a Baptist. In other words, if you were not prejudiced by your tradition and could stand aside from your tradition, you could look at it clearly. And if you could look at it clearly because you weren't prejudiced, then all of a sudden we could see it alike because I know I'm not prejudiced. Remember, that's when I said you were Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And so, all of that in the background, and then I'm listening to all of these people, and I could not any longer hold on to the notion that, well, the only reason that they're that and I'm this is because they're prejudiced? They clearly love God and are seeking to love their neighbor. And I told my mentor this. And he said, uh, he said, you know, I think sometimes we become like the Gnostics. That is, we think we have to, that if we haven't been given, that if somebody else hasn't been given the divine spark of knowledge that we have, then they can't possibly be Christian. Well, that was a key transformative moment for me. Well, in other words, one of the ways that grace began to shape my understanding was that I became, I came to this place of realizing that the subjectivity of tradition and the subjectivity of particular experiences that individuals may have may actually lead us to different conclusions about particular things. But surely, in the midst of all of that, it's possible for God's grace to be so real and so all-encompassing that maybe we and the Baptists can both be saved. Maybe that we and the Presbyterians can both be saved. Maybe that we and the Catholics can both be saved. However, 
Beneath all this celebration of grace, though, was still a basic presumption that I had, that I was caring about, about the nature of the human problem. That is, my basic metaphor for understanding grace was still that courtroom metaphor. Was that we come before God having chosen or ignorantly stumbled into a disobedience of God's will, and that God's grace is primarily God saying to us, you are forgiven. That is, I understood grace primarily still through a legal metaphor, through a courtroom metaphor. Well, in seminary days, I remember being assigned to read an article on the Apostle Paul by a Catholic scholar. And he began challenging basic Protestant, Protestant assumptions about Paul. And I remember, I think, for the first time ever, coming across this, this text from Philippians 3. Listen to this from Paul. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now listen to this phrase. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now this just like screwed up everything. Because here is Paul... The apostle of grace saying, I can say before God that I have kept the law blameless. Paul didn't need to stand before the throne of God and God say, I forgive you for not having kept the law. Paul says, I kept the law. That the law and law keeping... The legal metaphor, all of a sudden, seemed not to be his fundamental problem. Now, just quickly, in, in a parenthetical, I'll say that in time I'd come across an argument that the best way to understand Galatians, one of the great treatises on grace, of course, is not as a treatise against legalism, but as a treatise about the ways in which ethnic superiority has over, been overcome in the work of Christ. That it was... Jew versus Gentile. And I'll just make a quick note that if indeed that is, is something like that is what's going on in the gospel, that ethnic superiority is being undercut in the gospel, that is, as Paul will say in Galatians and as Paul will say in Ephesians, that what God has done in Christ is a new humanity, a new creation in which hostility is broken down, then we must realize that even in our day, when nationalism and white power is on the rise yet again, that we cannot act as if that is something unrelated to the gospel, but see it at the very heart of the gospel and something that we should be terrified to see happening in our day and our age. But we're not to that point yet. Because, in the meanwhile, what I was grappling with was something like Tolstoy's story. 
I remember one day in grad school, uh, standing on the street corner. Uh, in those days, I would either ride a bike or ride the bus. And I remember so clearly, standing on this particular street corner, I remember exactly where I was. And I remember this, um, this inordinate wave of lust roll over me. And I began immediately to pray, saying, Oh God, please take this away from me. Oh God, please take this away from me. And God did not take it away that day. It was not a good day. It was a bad day. In those days, I was fascinated more and more with Romans 7. You remember Romans 7, right? Because in Romans 7, what Paul says is, our problem is this, that we know the right thing to do, and we know the wrong thing to do. And we know, listen to this language from Romans 6, he says, we know that this stuff will lead us to life, and we know that this stuff will lead us to death. See, he's not giving us moralistic arguments about right and wrong. He's giving us teleological accounts about right and wrong. That is, he's saying, if you do this stuff, you will live well. And if you do this stuff, it will kill you and destroy you. And he says, we know it and we want to do it. But we do not do the good which we want to do. We do the evil that we do not want to do. And then, at the end of chapter 7, he says, Dear God, who will deliver us from this body of death? And then in Romans 8, he says, Thanks be to God. And by the end of Romans chapter 8, he talks about this new life we've been given in Christ. And I found Romans 7 and 8, I found Romans 7 to speak to my experience, and I found Romans 8 exasperating. Because I would get to the end of Romans 8, and I would say, Paul, I hear what you were saying, but you did not tell us how. So back to that uh, street corner. During that time, I'd begun developing a relationship with a, with a therapist there. He was, a, he was what the Catholics call a religious, and by that they mean someone who's taken vows. He was a Holy Cross brother. And the uh, next time I went to see him, I told him that story about me standing on that street corner praying to God, saying, Dear God, please take it away. Dear God, please take it away. And he looked at me very bluntly, and he said, Stop doing that. I mean, here's, here's this dude. I mean, he's taken vows. <laughs> And I told him I'm praying, and I'm thinking, you know, he's going to say good. And he says, stop doing that. And he said, that's a religious way of making yourself sick. And I said, so what am I supposed to do? And he said, start talking to people about it. There's a story in uh, another place in Tolstoy's journals, which by this time he's an old man. And um, he had um, um, 
he was struggling greatly on this particular day uh, with, with lust for a woman in the kitchen. He had all, all sorts of servants on his estate. And, um, and he tells in his journal how he was struggling greatly and how he didn't want to abuse his power and he didn't want to sleep with her. And he says, So I found my friend, so-and-so, and I told him. And we walked. And we talked. I had tried uh, confession earlier in my life, but I had tried confession as a sort of legal practice. That is, I tried it as some sort of kind of magical religious pill. And I thought that if I would just confess my sins, then God would take this stuff away. But it turned out that when I tried confessing that way, it turns out God still did not take it away. But when I began to lean into confession as a life practice, or when I became willing to try to practice sharing as a way of life to acknowledge how crazy and wacky my head could be, how crazy and wacky my thoughts could be, how crazy and wacky sometimes my behavior would be, then I began to realize there was a possibility that grace could do something differently in me. I grew even to dislike the phrase accountability groups. I don't like that term. I have a group I've been meeting with on Saturday mornings. I don't know how long we've been meeting, maybe eight or ten years. And I've had other sorts of groups I've met with for many, many years. And uh, the reason I don't like accountability groups is uh, I don't need to come into a space with the expectation, well, give us an account of what you've been doing, right? I'm so shaped by shame. I don't want anybody wagging their finger at me, even in the phrase accountability group. (laughs) What I need is a place where we all come as equals and we all talk about our stuff and even the rule that I have, uh, have seen work well in, in the contexts that, that have given me life are is nobody gives me feedback unless they ask for permission. And before they give me feedback, or before I give them feedback, we'll say, are you open to any feedback about that? And if we say yes, then they give us feedback. Um, so... The change in the metaphor, I would suggest, goes to something like this. That um, rather than thinking of grace through the courtroom metaphor that is primarily about a legal act of forgiveness, that grace becomes not just pardon, it is pardon, but grace becomes pardon and power. And the power comes through these various practices of life together in which we learn how to do life together. It does seem to me that on this particular point about grace as pardon and power that the 12-step groups have done a lot better oftentimes than a lot of churches have done because they've learned in very concrete, practical ways what it looks like to do certain practices and do certain communal practices through which the power of God and the grace of God can empower us to do something differently. 
that in response to powerlessness, power becomes possible. Grace, then, as pardon and power. Comments? Feedback? Got a few minutes. Fantastic circle. You're a really great circle. Glad you like my circle. Peace to you. See you next week. Thank you.